Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Derek Pernasiglio Show. And we've got a very special guest in here this afternoon, a guest that I have worked alongside for many, many years, a mentor of mine when I had first moved down south. He has been the voice of Concord Speedway, operated a speedway for a couple of years, now is over race directing at Caraway Speedway. He's been a fixture in the Southeast racing scene, Doug Smith. How's it going, buddy? Thank hey, you man, for- it's uh, it's an honor to be here. <laughs> what a great show that you have, and uh, I'm a fan. <laughs> I enjoy watching the show yeah. and 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 seeing all the fun that your guests and stuff have. And uh, hey, to be honored to be here is uh, to just say the. the it's the utmost importance to me. It was fun when you gave me that phone call. <laughs> well, you know, you and I had worked together for so many years at Concord Speedway when I had first moved down here, and we just became friends. And, you know, you came from that little bit of a, a an earlier generation of racing that I did, but you, you definitely, like, kind of schooled me on how things are done down here compared to up north. It's a little more lax than that kind of stuff, and... Yeah, but you've taught me with the admiration that I have for uh, traveling up to the north now and having the opportunity to go visit some of those speedways that uh, we've talked about with uh, Thompson and and Stafford, Waterford. These, uh, and I got to go up to Oxford Plains, so I got to see another one up there. But you enlightened me as to how tight racing can be with the fans, the way that it mixes and mingles, the true family comes out. Now, in the South, the hospitality is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. You still have a lot of that, but it it is a little bit more because, you know, we're we're rednecks down here, <laughs> you know, and, and we kind of started things off being a little bit redneck about what we do. <laughs> and uh, to accept the ways of the North was a little bit different, but I've been enlightened and I found out that it's one big family that we have in the racing community and it, it's uh even though we have our little different quirks we do mm-hmm. we have a lot of fun getting together and you and i've had the opportunity to be involved with the north south shootout mm-hmm. um very, since its inception it's since its inception the it's a very prestigious event yep um that that it's 21 years now uh that we've been doing it Yep, and we get to meet and mix and mingle and make those friends. And I find it that year to year, I look forward to those folks coming back Yeah, and kind of having a reunion. North South shootouts always been a, a fun event. It's changed a lot over the years it and has. people have been critical of it, but uh, you know, through it all, you got to give it to some of these races because uh, you know, the North South has been around for 20 years. A lot, you know, races don't last that long. That's true. But um, I always definitely enjoy doing it. You know, you got to remember up north, we're we're not we're we're not big into fenders, and y'all are big into fenders down here because you know we like our modifieds up north. Modified, that is where I became a little bit more acquainted uh, in in the whole story that comes. But once I really got around, I'd called some modified races before mm-hmm. at Concord, but when I went to Caraway Speedway. Uh, that's a home of modifieds. Mm-hmm. And I remember when they would host, when the uh, uh, Wheeland Smart. Southern Modified Tour was there. Well, they had the Smart Tour, but then the, Years the Wheeland Southern uh, uh, Modified Tour was going. Uh, Caraway was hosting up to six, seven races a year. I know. 
I mean, I thought they were a modified track. I didn't think they were a Fender track. And uh, until I became acquainted with it a little bit more and got educated, Uh got some more redneck Hackett education. You you know, you got to give it, though, though, to Caraway Speedway and the Hackett family because in a a sea full of late model racing, they have been hosting modifieds for decades. I mean, I saw pictures of Sam Ard winning in a modified at Caraway. So, you know, it just goes back to how, how long, like that far back, modified racing has been happening there at Caraway. Well, it is, and it's a fun place to be. Mm-hmm. I couldn't think of anywhere else I'd want to close out my career, which, you know, let's face it in life, my career is starting to wind down. Uh, I've hit that age of uh, 65. I can contribute a little bit. But as far as uh, having the rambunctious Free spirit that the gentleman sitting across from me still has. <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, oh, it's been 20 years of hard miles. <laughs> well, it is, but I mean, you still got that vivacious love for what you do, and it, it really, really shows, and it shows with the with the show that you have here, the guests that you have here, uh, the way you present the story. See, if I look at things and I kind of look at life, I look at things in, in this facet, I come from, as I look at your shirt and see the Gatorade sponsorship on there, that takes me back to my early times. Mm -hmm. So I'm what's considered the past. What I look across the table and see is what is now the present. And what you see on my shirt and the reason that, that... means so much to me is it's the future. Wearing my nephew's shirt? I'm wearing your nephew's shirt, but he's the future. Thank you. I appreciate of that. Of where racing is going to go. Okay. Nice shirt, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I'll let you know who my tailor is. <laughs> um, but to be able to to live in those years, because when I came along, there wasn't no cell phone. Right. There wasn't a fax machine. Hell, there was nothing. Mm-hmm. You went to the racetrack on Saturday night. You fought, tussled, everything else. You talked about it all week, and you came back on Saturday because that was your news. You got it at the racetrack. Yeah. 95 comes along. The internet spoils everybody. (laughs) I can just punch this in, and it'll give me all this information. Right. That's the present that we're living in, and, and I talk about it from look at the digital platform we're on right now. In doing this, that what does tomorrow hold? If I've come from an era in my lifetime of seeing absolutely nothing to a complex world today that is unlimited to what you can do, right? Where, where's where's the next generation? You go? got you got a computer right here in your pocket. Well, I know, you know? and it, you know, and it it blows me away because I'm still old school, but. Uh, I still don't get pictures. I don't take pictures on them and stuff and, and really utilize it. Uh, you've taught me more about my phone than I know. So <laughs> that's that's kind of the fun part. So you've seen the era of just sitting there and watching the races, the era of the computer coming in, the cell phone coming in. What do you think... Uh, what do you think that we have to do next to just get more people in seats at the racetrack? Well, unfortunately... We've given people reasons not to come. What do you mean? I think because of the way that we've handled our our growth, 
we really sunk a lot into, for instance, uh, the streaming. Mm-hmm. Streaming's going to keep a certain amount of people that's going to buy it that won't come to the racetrack. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you an example. I am an example of it. That won't or can't come to the racetrack? Well, I think it can be both. Mm-hmm. See, a lot you would hope that people would use it because they couldn't come, so they recorded it in, you know, the way we used to do on VHS and record something and play it back so we could do it. What we have today is technology has taken it to where I can sit at my computer. I can watch a racetrack 30 minutes from my house that, that happens to be a an iconic racetrack in its own right mm-hmm. and not go and spend my money to the racetrack. That has made it convenient for somebody to give an excuse not to come to the racetrack. As I said, back when I started this in the 90s, when I got into this, there was nothing. So you got no news. I mean, I can remember buying the Winston Cup scene a week late at the newsstand, but reading stuff that was a week late. We'd already had another race by the time I got to read it. Right. Because there was not a plethora of news out there. Well, the technology and news flow is now instant. Now we've made it so easy for it. So it's easy for somebody to say no. Mm-hmm. As it is, it is easy for somebody to sit on a keyboard and criticize racetracks. Oh, yeah. And put them out of business. Oh, my God. Social media. And, and, it, social know, media has been the best and worst thing that has absolutely. happened to racing. It really is because some places can use it smart and promote it. And other places yes. it's bad. And then people get on there and they just spit venom. Well, it is, and most of those are are just keyboard tappers, I call them, mm-hmm. they, because they don't they don't have it invested. Mm-hmm. They have not invested either sweat equity uh, into the the sport. They've not given back to the sport. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's so funny because sometimes when you read through comments, we get we get them on our social channels all the time. I'll read through some of the comments, and you can always tell. The guys who have never sat their ass down in, in the seat of a race car or, or, or owned one or anything like that. You can always you can always kind of tell from the comments, just from the little things you can pick up on. But it, yeah, it's and you don't even you want to reply to that to them. Be like, have you ever owned a car? Have you ever driven one? But, you know, all that's going to do is just take a nice big cup of gasoline and pour just it, pour on it right on there. And sometimes you're just better off. And right. I can say that for the first time in many years, I am social media free. Oh, okay. No more, uh, no more social channels for you. No social channels for me right now. Um, unfortunately, uh, there are uh, people out there in the world that wanted my my page. Oh, you got hacked. Oh, that kind of stuff. <laughs> wanted to uh, have my page much more than uh, I did, so they took ownership of it. I got you. Oh man, that's unfortunate. So, anyway, it's been kind of good to be away because it reminds me back of when I started, mm-hmm. because there wasn't that information. Mm-hmm. So you had to find the information that made announcing important because those tidbits that we found out about those drivers and shared with the fans, mm-hmm. they didn't have it anywhere else. They couldn't find that information anywhere else. Right. It was us being the mouthpiece providing it. You know, it's so funny too. That I, I, when I worked at speed sport, uh, um, you know, I learned a lot working there as well too, but you know, I didn't hang out a little bit with Chris Economaki or saw him at the track and, Learn from a little, <clears throat> learn from him a little bit, and one of the the things that he always talked about was, go 
talk to the drivers, find out what they do for a living, find out, you know, this guy might be a police officer, this guy might be an electrician, you know, you, you tell people what, who they are, or, you know, when you're talking about them on the mic and, you know, this, you know, this driver's a police officer by trade, you know, and just, is because you may have a couple of police officers that are in the audience watching or a few electricians that are, so they can connect with that driver and become a fan of them. That's it. And that's how it was. That was networking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I always kind of try to do that too, as far as like explaining, you know, who's who, or if there's a relation out there or things like that. Well, that's, uh, that, that made the importance of what we do is announcing. Mm-hmm. It was, we were telling a story. Right. I know. When they were on the racetrack, I always called it and 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 it described it as I was actually watching a soap opera. It is, oh, yeah. And <laughs> now they call them reality shows. Sure, sure. <laughs> but it was when I came along. It was soap operas, and all we did was fit the pieces together. Yeah. Because the story they were telling the, the drivers were telling the story. All we needed to do is be able to interpret it. Yeah, no, I I get you. I, I didn't learn. I did see early on the the differences between racing down here and uh, back up north where I had come from. A lot of time trial is going on down here. But the one thing that I definitely saw down here compared to up north was a lot more shit talking to each other in the pits and sign in booths and all that compared to back home because back home it was shut up and race and you know whoever beat who was the man down here. Oh, we saw fights at the sign-in booths before they even got into the track. <laughs> you know, those are the fun ones. That, that was amazing. <laughs> uh, see, I believe that would have been the Kevin Love family and the Todd Bradbury family. <laughs> Boy. Uh, two distinguished drivers in their own right. Both right. of them champions at Concord Speedway. Absolutely nothing but high regards, I would say, about, you know, both of them. But, Hard heads. <laughs> it was more than just hard heads. I mean, just to, to, to literally not wait till you got inside. I mean, they, they got the car ready, worked on it all week, towed the car to the racetrack. <laughs> a hell of a fight breaks out at the at, at the ticket booth, and I got two drivers headed to jail. That's <laughs> great. And we never got to race. And we never got to race. I remember. Yeah. How the hell does that happen? Uh, on, 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 only in short track racing, which is years ago, I had an opportunity to leave the short track racing world and further my career uh, into a radio network. Okay. All right. I got you. And uh, for cup racing and. Yes. Okay. So that provides content of that nature. Right. Okay. You know, you've painted the picture. I decided that I was having too much fun at a short track to want to go do that. Now, many people would say that would be a dream job. You get to travel, you get to do. And, and one of my, one of our, our friends does it, Steve Post, the postman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he loves it. Oh, Steve's a great guy. He we got to have him on the show. He is a wonderful guy. And stories galore that he can tell from, oh, he is a character. But when... You, when you look at those people, the storytellers, mm-hmm. how in the early part we were the mouthpieces, we were the most important part at the racetrack. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I will tell you, when I got into this business and I felt when I walked in the booth, I was the most important person at the racetrack because it was up to me to inform everybody else. Right. What was going to take place when it was going to take place and try to describe the action. But when I'm calling that soap opera and I'm watching it develop, a lot of times if you just think twice, yeah. cut once, <laughs> the storyline will unfold itself out to you. And and as I say that, I want to pay a moment of respect to a gentleman that I think many of us in this business in some fashion and form have tried to emulate. Yes. Who's that? It's Ken Squire. Oh, yeah. You know, he recently the, passed. The, the man could tell a story better than anybody that I ever had an opportunity to meet and know. Mm-hmm. And the way he presented it, you were captivated. And I always believed if I could captivate my audience like Ken Squire. Yeah, it would, it would work and they would uh, <sighs> they'd catch on. I know. Oh. To, to be that, you know, that great of a storyteller, to be able to paint the picture like he does too. Uh, yeah, God bless him. I, I did not get to work with him often. But uh, the few times that I did get to work with him, the funny thing is, is the whole conversation started about short track racing. You know, I just, I had mentioned Islip Speedway and he just went into this talk about, you know, Grand National going there. And I remember Islip and. That's why I told you that the the part for me not to go, uh short track racing was too important to me. Right. And my career panned out that I stayed in the short track uh, industry and still there today. Uh, 37 years now. Well, okay, let me ask you a question then. Uh, back in the day compared to now, why is it that we are seeing less and less local heroes? You know, why is it that we are not seeing those guys stick around at those tracks for years and years or race in those areas of the country? Where, why are we seeing less and less of that? Okay, let's go back to the Kyle Busch days. Just as recent as the Kyle Busch days. Mm-hmm. He couldn't race till he was 18. In the top three series. The top three series. He was. <coughs> you me. still had. He was to racing be, in ASA and you, at ASA. You could mm-hmm. go at sixteen. Right. So, it was Lord NASCAR lowered it to sixteen. Mm-hmm. Then it went to fourteen. Yeah. Then it went to twelve. Right. So not a lot of guys are sticking around. Okay. So why should I stay at a racetrack? Why should I build my name? When we talk about the the guys of the past, the Freddie Queries uh, that you've had on here, mm-hmm. he built his name at a short track. And we had Mike Herman on too. Mike Herman Jr. Mm-hmm. Oh man, yeah, one of my greatest. I've got several stories about about Mike Herman that 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 goes. But t- gentlemen, Jamie Tomeno, we've had paid their dues on that short track. They were at that racetrack when it opened, mm-hmm. and they were there every week supporting it. Right, they built a fan base. They built the T-shirt business. Mm-hmm. Those were the guys. That's how you identified with your driver. Right. You wanted to get it. Well, then, you know, it was hard for racers. So a lot of times tracks, I know at Concord, in my early years, we used to print up our souvenirs and print up T-shirts of our drivers and sell them. Mm-hmm. I mean, the track made the money. It wasn't driver getting anything for it, but 
except a little bit for his image and pat on the back from Henry Furs saying, come on back and see me next week. <laughs> but why, I mean, th- those are great examples of short track guys, but why are we seeing less and less of this? Well, because if you're not spending time building a fan base, whenever you make it into the next level, mm-hmm. you're not carrying a fan base with you. Okay. For instance, give you an example. Ryan Priest is one of the best examples that I can really do. He built himself an image. He built himself a, a fan base in the Northeast. So when he went to Xfinity Racing, he had some fans to bring. Right. His name was Common. Mm-hmm. You used to never make a cup. You didn't. You couldn't make cup till you were thirty. Right. Yeah. You know, it was funny because we had Todd Bodine in the other day and he said he didn't start driving professionally till he's 27 years old. Exactly. Which is your, which is now you're aged out by then. Yeah. If you had made it by then. Yeah. 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 You're gone. You're gone. I know. Uh, Your has been. Yeah. And we've, we've seen it over the years. Let's bring that young money in. Let's get that 12 year old. Let's get that 14 year old that daddy's writing a check and daddy's got a bigger dream than the son does. Well, you know, you brought up Ryan Priest, and he's a good example. Kyle Larson's a good example. Christopher Bell, and even um, William Byron will hop in a late model or a short track car or something like that and go race somewhere. I mean, hell, Larson's won the last two midget nights. uh, I forgot where he's racing. I think Uh, somewhere out in California. It was in California. Yeah. I mean, right there, you've got a cup champion, you know, a guy who challenged for the championship this year. Now he's whipping a midget around a short track. So those guys, you know, Bell, Larson, uh, Priest, you know, William Byron, who who races on the short tracks but didn't really come from them, uh, is still trying to keep that connection. You, you know, they're still trying to bridge that gap that had grown so far apart over the years. How about another little gap for you? Is that when the guys quit going out and supporting their local racetracks. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the guys who have made it. When did he quit oh, you mean doing appearances? Doing an appearance. Come around. Help the racetracks. Yeah. If you want to build a feeder system, you must first develop it from its inception. From the bottom up, yeah. Bottom up Strong is how you got to come. And if you build it in strength, mm-hmm. so why are we not, you know, you have your your Christopher Bells, your Kyle Larsons and stuff. They're at the racetracks making appearances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're racing. They're somewhere. You you know, you unfortunately there are people that spearhead a little bit more figuratively. They do financially do, but they're not putting back into the sport. We're taking way more out than we're putting back in. Yeah. It's 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 almost like an analogy of a plant. You know, short track racing is kind of like a tree if you think about it because if you if you cut off the roots, the rest of it starts to die away. Right. You know, we got to you got to keep the roots strong. If you keep a short you know, we in, in my job now as a race director, you know, we look at things of how to develop different series or different uh divisions that we might want to bring in or do. And and everybody wants to tour now. That's the big thing. Let's jump up and tour. A series. But you can't tour till you build. You need racetracks that are running your type of cars on a regular basis to help you build a tour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You need those functioning tracks you that operate you weekly. You can't yeah. just take five cars from this track, five cars from this right. track, five cars from this track, and say, we're going to start a tour. So, yeah, 
that tour may have 15, but you just killed three racetracks that had it as a division. I, I hear you. I get what you say there. Because if, if all you have are tours, <clears throat> how do tracks survive by just having exactly. a couple of tour races throughout the course? They, they need to operate on a weekly so basis. So to get to your point, you have to start building your fan base. Mm-hmm. And we don't have, they don't stay at a racetrack long enough to yeah. build a fan base. They race one year here, one year here, one year here. They're jumping. Money's good. They move them around to the, they get to the, to the series. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then, you know, what do you do with them? You know, you, you've been around for a lot of years doing this. How did it all begin for you? When did you first walk into a racetrack? What, was it as a kid or, you know, did you uh, just, did it stumble across you one day? You're going to have me to admit something that I've never admitted before. What's that? When it all started. When when was that? I live in a place called Lexington, North Carolina. Right around the corner from me, about, uh, I'd say about eight miles from me, was a dirt go-kart track. Okay. There was a gentleman who was in the racing industry that was doing the announcing. Uh, his name was Doug Rice. Oh, okay. Doug wanted to go on vacation. At the time, some people knew my background. I was actually running a bar. So they got me to close the bar down on that day. Okay. And go call the races. And fill in for Doug. For go-kart races. For go-kart races. <laughs> it was at that point the seed was planted. Two years later, I had the job at Concord as the full-time announcer. Cool. Now, in between the, the go-kart track it led me to 311 Motor Speedway, which was called then uh, up in Madison, the Daytona of Dirt. Right. Don't okay. sling them if you can, don't bring them if you can't sling them. <laughs> and I got a quarter every time I said that. That's cool. So I figured from the promoter. Promoter give you a quarter every time you said that. <laughs> okay. And what year was this? 1989. Okay. All right. Early 90. All right, so not a still not a huge amount for that day, but you say enough, it's a few extra bucks. It was a few extra bucks. <laughs> I mean, you know, you worked it into the show, and, of course, he'd throw you a few extra bucks for all the stuff that you did. But mm-hmm. um, did a few stunts there. Uh, was actually, you, uh, we were talking about, you want to know about some funny stories and stuff. I'm actually in the press box at 311, mm-hmm. calling the race. Got my partner there with me that, 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 took me up there to do he's going to be off a week so you know i'm working with him and stuff and all of a sudden there's a big kabam and in in the press box and we all get silent and all of a sudden one of the deputies said i hope i didn't shoot anybody in the concession stand his gun went off no, he had taken a little Dillinger pistol off of somebody down in the pits and he had it up in the press box and he just happened to be messing with it and it went off. <laughs> oh, no. 
<laughs> a little one of them little two shot. Oh yeah, just a little old two shotter there, and I mean he just sent it right through the old floor, and uh, <laughs> so I thought early on in my career, is this really what I want to do? <laughs> Guns going off. Guns going, yeah, guns going off. You don't know what. And I'd always heard dirt track racing was a little different than asphalt racing. Crowds were different. People were different. You appealed. Rowdier? Somewhat. <laughs> could be. <laughs> yeah, could be. I think I learned to fight at the dirt track. <laughs> and then I perfected it when I got to the asphalt. I already knew what we was going to do. What, so What were you doing fighting as an announcer? You know, you have those... Uh, Guy Harris, love him to death. Um, I think guys from down and around Monroe, and he just came to Caraway not long ago and ran a uh, um, uh, enduro race that we had. Had a finished fourth, had a ball that he, that he did. But he was a uh, he ran street stocks at, at Concord, and he was uh, just extremely good. His family was just wonderful, mm -hmm. and 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 somehow I don't even remember exactly what it was, but Guy Harris and somebody else had been kind of going at it, going at it, going at it, jawing and, you know, different things. And, and guys know small individuals. Mm -hmm. In fact, he kind of looks like Hulk Hogan compared to me. So a fight breaks out. I happen to be on the racetrack when the fight breaks out. Oh, in victory lane? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm up. I'm up. Actually, you remember where the divider, where the gate, where we came through the gate and we were actually on the track before we got to Victory Lane. I'm in that area at right Concord? there. At Concord. Okay. So I have to pile over, what, two railings because the fight's breaking out. I'm seeing everybody go into this thing. And all of a sudden, I run into this big Hulkamania <laughs> and it's Guy Harris. And I put my hands and just kind of took him towards the trailer. And I said, guy, it's Doug. Please don't knock the hell out of me now. <laughs> and he started laughing. But it was all over. Somebody said something to his dad. He's protective of his dad. That's short track racing. Mm -hmm. You know, you can mess with anybody you want. Don't mess with dad. Right. You know? I get you. Yeah. It, you know, it's so funny that you bring that story up because I think one time in victory lane uh, at a fight breakout while I was in the middle of doing an interview. And I, en I ended up having to throw the mic down and just trying to grab the drivers and separate it. And I'm yelling, stop, 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 stop. And uh, yeah, that was, and then the, finally the cop come over and he kind of like broke it up. And but yeah, I was in the middle of doing an interview. And next thing you know, this guy just swung on the other guy and they now, were fighting. And now here's what you learn in, in, in time. And I walked away from that hole. I walked away from that going, what an idiot. What the hell am I thinking? Breaking these two up. When that happens, mm. you use the microphone. <laughs> I know. I know. Don't lay it down. Go ahead. I, it was kind of knocked out of my hand, you yeah, know, because I, I was, you know, uh, I, it happened on the front straightaway at Caraway. It was a le two legend cars. Yeah. Two kids in legend cars going at it too. Yeah. That was funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So anyway, getting back to it. All right. You went from the go-kart track two years later, announcing over at Concord. Okay. Concord and became full-time. Worked under the well-known owner, Henry Furr. Henry Furr. Henry and Yvonne who Furr. Who is the father of Tony Furr, the cup crew chief, right? Yes. Okay. So how did you meet, end up meeting Henry Furr to get the job at Concord? Another interesting little story. I'm uh, selling advertising in the radio business. Mm -hmm. And uh, I go up and call on a little garage it was called harry's automotive and it was owned by harry hill 
And we got to talking, and he said that he had a race car. Well, I'm intrigued. So he takes me out to race shop. I look at the race car and all. It's a late model sportsman. And he says, you know, we run, we're starting in March. We're going to run the Big Ten. I didn't know what the Big Ten series was. I didn't know what anything was. So he invites me to go to the racetrack with him. So as I get there, um, he goes up and tells us I'm in radio. And I do this advertising. And Yvonne Fur looked at me and said, did you talk about Concord Speedway on the radio this week? I said, yes, ma'am, I sure did. Knowing that it's on the end of his ad, come see Mm -hmm. Olds 97 at Concord Speedway every Saturday night. So I said, yes. So she gave me my pit pass. Oh, cool. That started every time I would come, she would give me my pit pass. She'd charge everybody else, but I got mine free. That's cool. So at the end of the year, we went to the banquet. And I found out, or, or actually Harry found out, that the announcer was not coming back. So at the banquet, Yvonne asked me, would I introduce the band so they could hear my voice? How was I? So I do like any announcer do. We go get our information, you know, and then we quick funnel, uh, uh, put together what we're going to say in our head real quick, and then we do the intro and bring the band out, you know, and everything's great. Well, Henry looks at me after I did that, and uh, he said, uh, look, he said, I don't have an announcer. I've got a go-kart race this coming Sunday, Mm -hmm. and I don't have an announcer. He said, would you mind uh, coming and working for me, and I can hear you on the Microphone some more. Uh-huh. Well, as you know, in dirt track racing, you work two divisions ahead. You want to get them in the staging area, so dirt tracks, you want your show moving right along. Right. Something that I had to get used to yeah. living down here and announcing because there was no pit PA like there is up north yes. because they differentiate when they hear the different no- voice. Yes. They know it's, you know, for the pits. So, yeah, I had to kind of get used to calling up divisions in the, in the staging areas. Well, as we were doing... I was getting ready for the stage and area and doing Henry came up. He said, I pay this on Thursday. I pay this on Friday. I pay this on Saturday. And I, I'll even tell you now, I think when I started out, I did a go-kart race in 1991 for 50 bucks. He says, I pay on the big 10, uh, qualifying night pays $80. And the Big Ten race pays $100. So if you add it all up, it turned out pretty good. You know, it was a pretty good weekend. And back then in 1990, that was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact, my first my first two years that I announced for Henry Fur, I bought a car and paid cash because that's how you got paid. Right. You got paid cash and... You just got your little envelope or your paper bag. I even got them in paper bags. At the end of the night? At the end of the night, they hand you a paper bag, and that's what you took home. That was your money. <laughs> it's amazing how that works. Now, when you started at Concord, yeah. was it still dirt? Because Concord started – well, no. actually, hold on. Going back to the history of it, Concord was not originally on Route 601. There was another Concord There Speedway. was a Concord Speedway. Where was that? Uh, it was located uh, – out 29 uh-huh. and that's where the original in fact uh, i think somebody told me there were still some markers that were out there from the old speedway and the way that it came about was henry 
decided he had been promoting the old Concord Speedway. He had promoted Metrolina. Mm-hmm. And him and Humpy and stuff. Anyway, there was another separation between the two again. They were always off and on. They were great promoters, but they get hard-headed with each other. One, we go do one thing. One, go do the other. Mm-hmm. Both, both great at what they did. And Henry said, I'll just go down here. I got a bunch of land. I'm already in the earth moving business, and uh, I'll just build a racetrack. So he goes before the county commissioners, and hell broke loose. Oh, no, sir, Mr. Fur, We are not under any circumstances going to allow you to build a racetrack out there on 601. Henry being the man that he was, mm-hmm. told him just fine. He went back. They came back before the county commissioners, and he had applied for his permits to put a hog farm. <laughs> so he was going to put a hog farm? He was going to put a hog farm where Concord Speedway is. Mm-hmm. And the county commissioner said, Mr. Furr, when would you like to start construction on your racetrack? <laughs> Uh, because they didn't want a hog farm. Definitely did not want the hog farm. Because of the stink, that was, right? That's right. The less of the two evils was to have the racetrack. Mm-hmm. So in 19, actually in 1982, he opened up a dirt track, Concord Speedway, and they, they rushed all the way to the end. And they only ran, I think, maybe five or six races. That was that track on 601, right? On 601, the okay. first year. The original track was, you said it was on 29? It was on 29, and I, I, I the, the exact location. Now, what, what was that? Was that a quarter mile, a half mile? What what was it? Uh, three-eighths mile. Was it three-eighths? Okay, so they went over to down 601 yep. to a half mile? Half mile. Okay. And it was an oval shape. It, it, in the originally, beginning. in the beginning, it was an oval shape. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was in 1982. And like I said, they started out, I think they ran five or six races. And then he really opened up the following year, and I think it was at 83 was the, the first full season that he ran. And then in 1987, they paved. Mm-hmm. And it was still an oval. And then I think it was 80, latter part of 88, he put the dog leg in. Okay, so you were there announcing and talking on the mic before the dog leg went in. No, no. I was after the dog leg. Oh, you were after the dog leg. Now, the okay. interesting story to that is, now, Concord, as you know, you've seen it a half-mile track. Now, question, hold on, just interrupt you quick. <clears throat> they added the dog leg because he thought he was going to get a bush race, right? Yes. Oh, okay. That's why they added it. That's why Concord had 10,000 seats. Oh, okay. Now, many of those were covered up prior to the closing of the track anyway. But the, originally, when I went to work there, there were ten thousand, and on a on a normal show, we would do thirty five hundred to four thousand people. Mm-hmm. And on a, a Charlotte weekend, which back in those days, um, Charlotte ran in the afternoon, Concord ran Saturday night, and then you had your Cup race on Sunday, so it made it a whole big weekend type type of deal. We would have anywhere from six, seven, eight thousand people there. Wow! No kidding. And, 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 and I'm going to say, as a, and you know it, as an announcer or an entertainer, if, if you want to see somebody get a, 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 a boner from his wedding night, just put me 8,000 people out there and let me start talking to them. <laughs> that, 
that's when I feel that I'm just in the best of my world because I'm actually entertaining people. Having fun? Having fun. Yeah. The, uh, uh, over the years, like you got to work with Henry Fur. like what, what was he like as a promoter and an individual? And I'll tell you. I had heard, you know, many stories like, uh, you know, he was, he was good at what he did. He was hard headed though. Uh, and, he was, he was and, a dead ass Ford man. I'll tell you that. Oh yeah. He was a Ford man. Okay. Just remember every race car, no matter what make or model it is, mm -hmm. has a forward rear end in it. Yeah. True. Right. The Dana rear. Yeah. I, it's got I a forward rear end in it, baby. And that's what, you know, Henry referred. That was, uh, he was a Ford man through and through. <laughs> uh, one of the great sponsors was Hilbridge Ford, uh, that, Furnished us pace cars for years. I remember them wrecking them two in one year. Oh my God. How'd you wreck race cars? How'd you wreck pace cars? Uh, it wasn't me. It was actually uh, Mike Congdon, who uh, is notorious and I think is still in the, this this uh, metro area of Charlotte. Um, he had the queen in there for one, and he came, you know, we had that tunnel. Yeah. And he came through the tunnel and just wiped one of them out. Oh God. And, uh, that was the other one was they were at the end of pit road and he had parked it just not exactly where he should have. And it was enough in the way that a car come by and just took the pace car out too. So we lost two pace cars in, I don't know, two weeks, three weeks. Oh my God. Henry was a little pissed at that one, but <laughs> Henry Fur was the type of man that he could get mad at you. He could cuss you out for everything and make you so mad that you'd never want to work for the man again. And two minutes later, offered to buy you a beer. And because Henry said what was on his mind. That's the type of, of, and that's the old day promoters. Russell Hackett, who was the the daddy at the at, at Caraway. Mm -hmm. um, Russell and Henry believed in those days we had plenty of race cars. So you could look at a guy and tell him, if you don't like the way we do things here, Pack your bags, pack your ass, load your car, and go somewhere else and race. Mm -hmm. We can't do that today. Because we're getting less cars. Less cars, so you can't afford to run your customers off. But back in the old days, you could. Mm -hmm. And those old promoters were stout about that. So Henry could do things that would make you mad in the world, mm -hmm. but then he'd be smiling five minutes later. He never held anything against you, never held a grudge, never knew the man to hold a grudge. Mm -hmm. And God knows I pissed him off enough to set the world on fire because he would call me on the radio and tell me to announce something. And I would, and then he would turn around and call me back and say, what the hell did you say that for? I did say that. I said, yes, you did on my radio, Henry. That's what you told me. <laughs> oh, okay. So, but it was also the place I learned to drink. Mm -hmm. There was a 12 pack of beer. Now I said, yeah, it was one of the perks for the announcer. He got a 12-pack of beer a night. They had no problem with the announcer drinking? Oh, no, no. As a matter of fact, Henry <laughs> Fur would always tell us, said, boys, say, when y'all start out the race, we can hear everything real good because y'all holding y'all's microphones away from your mouth. Mm -hmm. But said, the more beer that y'all drink throughout the night, it seems like that microphone gets closer <laughs> to your mouth, and I think y'all going to swallow the thing. That's great. So I thought for the first five years that I was at a racetrack that you got drunk at the racetrack every week. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and got paid. And got paid. And got paid. So you were drinking and getting paid. Drinking, <laughs> drinking and getting paid. Oh, God. What it, better way to spend the Saturday night? Now, you want to pry me out of that seat? 
<laughs> now, Henry was the one who came up with the Big Ten series, right? He created the Big he Ten created. series, and it was originally, in its original was a Big Ten series, it was 10 races. Mm-hmm. It ran from the third week in March until Thanksgiving. Third week in March until Thanksgiving. It was 10 races, right? 10 races. 10 races. Spread out over those. $10,000 to win each one, right? He would do 10000 but now twice a year, he might slip an extra race in and run a $10,000 show. Well, that's what I thought the Big Tens were. They were... Tens only paid 5000 when oh, I, I thought, started. Oh, they only... Okay. See, five, now, let me tell you, $5,000 in 1991 was a hell of a lot of money. a lot of money, yeah. I mean, any way you looked at it, that was still a lot of money. Right. And you had the best short track guys in the country show up for those oh, races, Oh, they would. Right? I mean, they were coming from everywhere. It's a who's who. Right. I remember doing one where we had 52 cars. Wow. And we were only going to start 34. And this was super late models, right? Super late models. Super late. Not late model stocks. Not super late model late. stocks. And see, that was another thing Henry did. The reason he built a fan base he had his own late model stocks. If you remember back in the 90s, they went from a perimeter car, straight rail, went. you had straight rail cars, and then you went perimeter. Mm-hmm. And all pro and everybody was going perimeter. Henry says, screw that. I'll give them a reason to run Concord and run Concord only. I'll run offset. So everything else with the late model stocks was perimeter chassis. Oh, okay. So he separated himself. Hmm. But you still always got a, thinking ahead. Still got a ton of cars though. Always. And you had like guys like uh, Billy Bigley would show up. Rich Bickle, Greg Biffle, um, Bobby Gill, Bobby Gill, Ernie Irvin. Like these are all like before the the cup. Why do you think that I said that? Why would I want to pry my butt out of that seat? Because man, I'm seeing everybody that's coming through. That's going to be a who's who in NASCAR. Right. I'm seeing them come through the short track. Right before they're gonna make it, mm-hmm. so my friendships with a lot of these guys started from a short track, right? And my friendships today still remain with a lot of them. What's uh, what's one of your most cherished memories of the Big Ten series? What's one of the big ones you remember? Freddie Query was the guy to beat, obviously. Freddie Query was the guy to beat, but I'm gonna go you. I'm gonna up you one. It's a story I tell an awful lot because it teaches about patience of being a race car driver. What's that? Uh, Mike Thomas was from Dalton, Georgia. Mm -hmm. He owned a carpet company. He also was a former owner of uh, Port City South. Mm -hmm. And a customer had actually brought uh, a race car back, and it kind of insulted Mike because it was uh, back then we were running the Monte Carlos. And he brought him the car back and said it wasn't worth anything. So Mike puts it in his fleet that he runs at the Big Tens with, and he brings it to Concord. He says, if it didn't make my customer happy, I'll figure it out. So that year, Mike um, won the first race. And in the second race, uh, they're over right about the dog leg. And Freddie turns him into the wall. Now, remember... And I remember you talking to Freddie about some different things, but remember there was a code of ethics back then Mm -hmm. and it was managed among the drivers. You didn't usually have to outside officials didn't have to get involved. They'd take care of themselves. 
Mm-hmm. I walked through the pits that evening after the race, and I'm talking to Mike Thomas, and he said, well, he said, I think it's going to be time for the rich man to teach the poor boy a lesson. <laughs> now, what did he do? Hook him in the right rear? and spin- hooked, him, hooked him and <clears throat> sent him right in the wall. Okay. Nowhere to go. I mean, Mike had no chance, no fight. You're done. Okay. Wipe the car out. And at Concord, if you got up there and you hit that hard, you were going to wipe the car out. Right. Now, was it intentional? Was it, you know, was it accidental? Didn't, you know, did they I, get I'm to gonna the bottom say, of that? No, I'm actually going to say that it probably was not intentional because both of these guys had a whole lot of respect for each other. Mm-hmm. And I do not believe that it really was. But remember, at that time, Freddie Crayer was the hot shoe at Concord. Mm-hmm. He had that terminal truck and number six, man, he was the top dog. Everybody wanted him. So anyway, Mike said, I guess it's time for the rich man to teach the poor boy a lesson. So we go along with race three, four, five, <laughs> six, seven. And we're at the eighth race. Hell, I've been thinking he's going to do something to him. He ain't going to let that get by. I know Mike well enough. He's not going to let this go by. He's going to get him. In the eighth race of the year, it presented it to him at the near, right near the end of the dog leg. Mike had a perfect opportunity to hook Freddie. And when he hooked him, he sent him into the wall. I, the tape on it, you can see uh, Freddie cutting the wheel back down, trying to take Mike with him. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't. Oh, so, so there's video of this. So at the end of the night, I walked by Freddie. And he just looked at me and kind of grinned. And he just said, I guess the rich man taught me a lesson. <laughs> now, I had two conversations. They were months apart. Neither one knew what the other one had said to me. Mm-hmm. And they both said the same thing. So... In the day of that Big Ten series, they policed their own selves. Yeah. But they did it with patience. If they were going to take somebody out, right? they didn't do it right then. Right, they're waiting for a time and a place. Time and a place when I can give you your payback. And you'll know when I pay you back. You don't need to shake your head. You're going to know. But that is the difference between adults racing then and you know the younger generation racing today because earlier in our conversation what did we talk about patience we talked about guys being 30 years old when they made it Mm -hmm. as opposed to being 18 19 years old and going through these these are by the time you reach 30 you better have a little bit of head on you well, the the retaliation thing we're seeing is getting worse and worse in racing, and and I hate to say it too, but you know we have the ability to see stuff on our phone, and communication is the way it is now. Um, I hate to use the example of Bowman Gray because Bowman Gray is great, but Bowman Gray is also known for their fighting and retaliation and all that, and we're seeing a lot of it on Flow Sports uh, when sure. they show Bowman Gray, you know, the the antics that go on there, and. and you know, as wild as it is, too, I also think it's sending a bad message because it's normalizing this type of behavior at the track. 
because uh, we're seeing it appear in other racetracks, you know, in other parts of the country where they're doing this stuff with going after each other. Well, I think sometimes you got to learn respect. And that's a big word for a race car driver or anybody to use. But when you step out foot on the track, and I say it as a, as a race director, you better have some respect. You better respect what you're around and what you're doing. First of all, you're fortunate to be able to do it. Secondly, use a little bit of a head. The, well, the, the problem too is, is that you can't, you can't be showing this stuff all over the world. I mean, obviously it's out there. It's going to be shown, but you can't normalize it because if you normalize it, then it's going to happen every single week. Okay. Because what me- we're seeing now is we're seeing the normalizing of the, the dump and run, the bump and run, uh, taking someone out on the last lap where we didn't see a lot of that, you know, in the past. Now I watch a, I watch a late model race. I'm waiting for the leader to get dumped with one or two to go. So therefore, when we started this conversation, yeah, I said past, present, present, future. Mm-hmm. The past that that I get to talk about and some of the great things, and I I mentioned about you know Mike Herman Jr. one of the great gentlemen living in Kannapolis, and I remember even going down later in our friendship where he has this uh, remote control cars. Mill Hill Stadium. Mill Hill Stadium, and they race them at Mill Hill. <laughs> and I got to go down to Mill Hill and take in and see guys. We're still kids at heart. Oh, yeah. We're not going to grow up. Mike's not going to grow up. I'm not going to grow up. Those of us who have gotten to this age, it's not going to get any better. I mean, we're still going to be stupid. <laughs> we're still going to be into this because this is a lifestyle. Yeah, it is. This is a way of life and a lifestyle. It is. Yeah, there's this times when I get frustrated and all that, and I think, you know, to to myself, maybe I need to do something else, and you just, you it pulls you back in because you just, you so, you, you so want to see what's going on in the racing world. It's it's addictive. I've retried twice, <laughs> and I ain't left yet. Yeah, I know. So it, it's it's that type deal. It's that that joy that you get out of short track racing that only short track racing can feed you on. Mm-hmm. And we have so much out there to draw from, from legends to bandoleras to things that we've done. Unfortunately, we're just not leaving kids long enough so that they learn a few good traits, like how to be respectful on the racetrack, how to drive uh, beyond the the nose of the race car. Well, I'm going to pose a question to you, and we've been posing it to actually most of the guests that have been coming in. And that question is, what is what is the emphasis on moving kids up to the top level of racing? Money. Think so? Money. Yeah. Everything's generated around money now. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it takes money to, to, to do what we do. Mm-hmm. It takes money to, to put race cars out on, uh, on the tracks now. And, you know, I'd say when I started um, – 1991, a, a top late model sportsman. You could put together 60 or less mm-hmm. and have yourself a good car. Mm-hmm. Freddie, Freddie could right. probably do it on a little less, right. but to have yourself a, a really good car for that. Today, you build a, a late model stock. A good late model stock got a 100,000 in it. Yeah. Easily. Yeah, the technology that's in the, the technology, everything has changed so much to that point that it's driven the cost up 
So what we've done and now how do we all hold on all for a car that these guys don't mind wrecking week after week. Yeah. But I don't have to fix them. Yeah. I I get it. No, I understand. When this sport was thriving and doing its greatest part is whenever we were in the, in the garage, you had, you probably owned a service station. You had a garage in the back. You got a bunch of guys together and you put something together and you went to the racetrack with it. Right. That's how this sport was built. Right. No, it was not with the technology and the high dollars. The the technology and stuff is just a result of what has taken place in the world. But that past is where that ground root and that system, as we talked about in order, you have to have a, a feeder system in order for a tour to work. It's the same way for the racetrack to work. You know, my objection today to people in motorsports is if you do not build your short tracks, if you don't build your local tracks into institutions like they were, you're not going to have a big track. Mm -hmm. Right. You're not going to have the system to feed them through. The way that the the tracks are nowadays, though, it's – it's a lot of money to run them, you know, it is. It's, it's a, a, you know, the overhead is uh, tremendous. How do these racetracks survive? What can they do? You have to look, you have to be very innovative in today's market. And, and it's one of the toughest things that I think I've had to go through uh, in helping uh, Darren Hackett at Caraway is uh, how do we, how do we try to keep the cost down? But yet, how do we put um, a good racing product on the, on, on the, on the racetrack? And yet, how do we fulfill the fan and their participation into what we do? Right. So I think what you're seeing is um, shorter seasons. You're going to see the attention span is not as strong as it used to be. As I told you, I used to race from uh, March to November mm-hmm. religiously. All right. Today, we're shortening seasons. We're not running. Racetracks are not finding other ways to form revenue. They need to. You got to take in revenue. You need if you're not racing, you see on on Friday night or Saturday nights, four four nights, Saturday nights you you were racing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now in today's world, we've cut it back to where it's hard to get them to race more than every other week, or or to have enough money, discretionary money to be able to go race every other week. What about alternative things though? What about like the, the drift competitions or drifting uh, things, monster trucks, demolition derbies, those are the, flea markets, flea well, markets are becoming are the big things. at racetracks. You're right. You're a hundred percent correct. Mm-hmm. And you are at that. Caraway, for instance, has a three, three, six meets. It, it, what is a three, three, six meet? It's organized guys that just come down and they rip the cars, donuts, whatever they want to do. And I've seen them burn a set of tires off and think, why? So these are, these are like what, like the, uh, you know, like the, the parking st- lot takeovers. Okay. Well, they you, do donuts and it's all the yep. fast and the furious type cars. Yep. And you this, know, the is foreign the, cars this is and, the same ordeal mm-hmm. that you do in a parking lot. Right. That we're doing in an organized racetrack. Okay. Giving people an opportunity where they can't get in trouble for doing it. Right. Okay. Good. But you got to sign. You got to find those things. We do a couple of crash and burn shows, as we call them, each year, where we either bring a monster truck in or we do demolition derbies. We do fun things 
uh, strange things. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do figure eight racing. We did. Uh, we stole a couple of ideas from Seekonk, which, of course, you'll know the pumpkin smash and the watermelon <laughs> smash. We stole both of those, brought them down to Caraway to do them in a figure eight type situation. We make a little track on the inside. And the guys, they they love it so much. They, they do a figure eight race in the infield at Caraway. Oh, no kidding. Oh, yeah. So it's a blast That's that, cool. that we do. So, yes, it's those shows and those things mm-hmm. because um, your premier, you can only do so many premier shows a year. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, we're fortunate that, that this past year we had the Wednesday night show where Kyle Larson came when the Cars Tour was there. Mm-hmm. That was a very good night. It was a packed house that night. And then night. our, our wow. North, North South shootout, of course, was so we had two big events uh, within the year, and that's usually you're lucky to get one big event. Mm-hmm. We were lucky to have two, you know, good events for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my history came, as you were talking about. Henry Fur, mean as a rattlesnake. I go to work for... <laughs> mean as a rattlesnake. I, I go to work for the Laytons, for uh, David Layton. And his family. Because they bought the track. They bought the racetrack. After and, Henry and, Fur passed, right? No, no, no. Nope. Oh, no. no? Oh, no. Yvonne Fur had been for two years saying it was time for Henry to quit. She couldn't wait to get him out there. Mm-hmm. Henry finally agrees to sell it to the Laytons. Mm-hmm. And at that time, the figure that I was given made my knees weak. Because it sounded like a whole lot of money to me. To the sale of the racetrack. For the sale of the racetrack. Oh, really? Which isn't a lot of money today. Mm-hmm. I think it was $4 million. Wow. I think they paid $4 million for it. They made some improvements to it right away and made it into a fantastic facility. I mean, it was, right. you had the best, best PA, best everything that we had. I mean, it was the best of everything. Well, the other thing Concord was also known for was the place was used in so many racing commercials. Oh, it was. It was. I, I mean, I worked on a shoot uh, with a racing commercial there with actually with with Chris, our producer. He was one of the producers well, of the, the one of the commercials I, that I we was did. Telling there. you on the way it was down, Jack Sprague in the Net Zero car yep. back in the day. Yeah, yep. when Net Zero was. Well, on. we hosted uh, Shaquille O'Neal in his uh, show that they used to do on ABC, and it was it was Shaq does somebody always challenge somebody to an event in their thing, and uh, we did the one in Concord with Dale Junior. Uh, and and. So Shaq raced Dale Jr.? Yeah. Had, oh, let me tell you, this is so... In what, a late model? No, they had ARCA cars. Okay, a little bit bigger. We had to build... It because no, it had Shaq to be, is like over seven foot tall, right? Well, it was. Yeah. He had to cut the roof out. Wow. Cut the whole roof out. He, there was no way he was going in the window. <laughs> so we got stools and set stools up so he could walk up the stools to make a ladder and climb in and slide down into the car. The funny part about that is, is seeing... I was there for the shoot. I know how everything turned out. Mm-hmm. I will tell you that what I observed on TV didn't have a damn thing to do with what I saw. <laughs> That's the magic of television. It was magical television <laughs> yeah. because uh-huh. it was funny how Shaq was two laps down. Oh, really? But he's about to win the race. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, that was that was the days of meeting Andy Hillenberg and 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 that bunch. So yeah, I it was used. You guys squeezed Shaquille O'Neal into oh, a race God. car. Let me tell you something. You ever shook his hand? Well, no, but I mean, I've seen pictures of him. He's seven foot three, right, or something like that. Right. I mean, he's I, over seven feet tall. Yeah, you know, got to duck say, his head every time he walks in the door. I'll just say that when I put my hand in his, there was no hand. 
Right, just disappeared. It did. I mean, his shoot, he could have probably took three fingers and shook my hand because it was still swallowed my hand up. I mean, <laughs> guy's huge. Wow. But what what a guy! He, Steve Smith was out there at that that shoot too. So, but you talked about that was where another lot of revenue was done, and because Concord was right in the backyard of Charlotte, right, it made it for a great place to run out and shoot something. And yeah, and uh, that and well, technically from a production standpoint too, to shoot at Charlotte Motor Speedway was way more expensive sure. than it was to shoot at Concord. Sure, Concord still had that super speedway look to it though. Yep. On camera, that it track was. looked like a super speedway. And, and you had Alan Jackson cut a, uh, a video. The three doors down also cut a video yeah, there too. Uh, there at the track. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it was uh, notorious for being used for. A lot of multi-purposes, which we don't have anymore. All right. What's one of the the one of the more funny or interesting stories you could tell us about Henry Fur when he was running the place? Henry Fur was notorious for his drivers' meetings. Okay. And I probably base some of my drivers' meetings that I do off of what I observed from Henry mm-hmm. from that many years back. Dan Fur was running a Concord late model stock. Was he related to them? Nope. Okay. Not related at all. Okay. And we always knew something about his car wasn't quite right. But as a inspectors and things, it's your job to find it. Now, Henry's rule of thumb is, if, if it's not on my list for going to look for it, I'm not probably going to look for it. But when it does hit my list, I'm going to bust you a new ass for, for doing it. So anyway, they had modified the intake. So Henry had taken, they had taken a perfect, nice bandsaw, and they took the intake, and they cut it down the middle. Now, I'm standing at the driver's meeting, and I can't tell that it's been cut. And Henry ain't said nothing about it being cut. So they pulled it off in inspection and off. cut it down the middle. They they it took it off one race, mm-hmm. disqualified him for an intake. Mm-hmm. So, you know, back in those days, earlier days, you used to display parts or whatever to show what you'd caught. Mm-hmm. You know, the penalty box kind of things showing. Well, Henry just made two perfectly nice cuts, and I mean it fit together just like a perfect manifold. He's doing his driver's meeting. And he said, yeah. He said, I just wanted y'all to know that the results are in for a test on certain manifold. And he's got it together, and I swear it still looks like it's still together. And he says, tell you what, Dan, I'm going to give you back your intake. Dan comes up and gets it, and he's walking back, and all of a sudden he just takes it apart, and the look on his face was priceless because <laughs> he thought he was getting his nice intake back, which he had about four or $500 invested into, and it was just cut. That little secret was gone. <laughs> and Henry gave it back to him to make him think he was getting it back as one, and Dan standing there in the driver's meeting with two pieces, and we're all laughing because <laughs> it was just like Henry. You bring it, I'll find it, I'll give it back to you, but it won't be in the same shape. He cut it in half. What was it? Was it the intake ported or something? Or oh, it was okay. 
Gotcha. Wow. So Henry sold it. <clears throat> uh, the Leightons took over, Leighton. and that's when I showed up. You showed up then. In, in 2001. Yep. Yep. And uh, that's when I had met you. Yes. And we had worked alongside in the booth for many, many years. Uh, just kind of got the, the feel of how uh, to do racing down south. I think it was great for, for both of us. Yeah. I got yelled at a lot about my pronunciation of things. Oh, yeah. and <laughs> Damn Yankee. Started off saying radiator instead of radiator. And uh, oh my God. Well, some of the other things. Oh, that, I remember those first the years. New York accent. And, and yeah, it was. And that was the I think the biggest things uh, you you'd be there for a while and then uh well Derek would disappear for a little while and then they'd come back for a little while and it was <laughs> you know, each time it was always a little something. It was just you guys would hi- you guys would fire me, hire me, fire that, me. Okay, hire I, I wasn't gonna be that. Yeah, that's kind of <laughs> what happened. Hire, you know, they just uh, they, I'd, I'd talk them into hiring him back. Let me have Derek back. Let me have Derek back. <laughs> yeah. You know what the funny thing is, is? I have no idea why I would get fired. You know, I I know <clears throat> like David didn't like like up north. We did music introductions yep. with some of our calls and, and that yep. stuff. And I started playing that. And I remember David busted in the announcers booth one night. And he was like, Derek, no more music. You know, I was like, uh, okay, next week I didn't have a job. I was like, what the fuck? So, and uh, Lord knows. And then a couple of weeks later, I get a call back. Uh, we got the legend cars at the fifth mile. We need an announcer for tonight. <laughs> so then, then I'd be back, you know. Well, you know, back in those days, what we did, there was a plethora of people out there. Right. You guys are trying to pick from you, a you talent could, pool. You know, you could you had a talent pool. Mm-hmm. Today I don't find that talent pool out there to be as as great. Mm-hmm. It's harder to find people who want to dedicate time. Well, I guess I energy. must not have been that good because you kept hiring me back. <laughs> you know, the other guys are moving on to bigger I, and better you things. You just turn around and go, he just won't go away. <laughs> we quit paying him and he won't go away. <laughs> that uh, was tenacious. Oh, no, God. those were some fun times, growth times that went through. I really, uh, from that aspect, it prepared me for um, 2008 coming in my life when I went to a uh, Speedway as the general manager, and all of a sudden I'm calling the shots instead of being a team member calling the shots. Right. Now I was just going to ask you, you know, you went to – you know, announcing at a track to running a track. Yeah. Now you're in a completely different position, which is hard. I, you know, I'm, you know, I'm working for Mountain Creek Speedway now. Can honestly say that racers are the hardest customer base to satisfy. They they really are. Let me throw the one more curveball on you. That that one. What's that? I was also announcing at Concord while I was running Ace. Wow. So I was doing. I was doing a little multitasking. Did they there. know about it? Oh yeah, oh, absolutely. Okay. They All were right. up front. I mean, it was it was cool about doing it, you know, and because mm-hmm. uh, one was on Friday night, one was on Saturday night, mm-hmm. so it worked out beautifully. How did you like running a track though? Because it's it's a hard job Run, because you have to take care of everything from the napkins at the concession stands yeah. to the toilets. Yeah, you know, did it all and everything in between. Did it all. You know, dug holes, dug a sewer system. Right, advertising. Uh, I had a sort. I had a sort of system that uh, from uh, the first half of the year was overflowing. Mm-hmm. I got a break on the Fourth of July, and I got in there with some diggers, and we started digging up till we found the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to fix it. Then I got a water line that goes bad. And I got to go six hundred feet underground to get to the water. And Ace is a beautiful track. It's a beautiful place, a beautiful facility in Alta Mahal, North Carolina, and uh, 
I still remember seeing that white fence whenever I drive in, and it was always the most um, beautiful place whenever I would drive in. It just it would mesmerize you. When you got to that gate and I would put my key in and unlock it and kick the gate open and it's my racetrack. Did you like doing it? I loved it. Did you really? You liked I did. doing it? I did. I enjoyed every aspect of it. The um, the problems were in 2008, as you know, the economy went to hell. Mm -hmm. And it the only time in my life I've ever had to stand in front of grown men and tell them that if you were racing for $1,500 last week uh, due to the new purse structure, in order for us to operate, you're going to race for $800. Okay. Now, this is what we can afford to pay. And if you, you know, guys, if you don't want to come, I understand it. I fully do. Right. I, I need your support, and it's the only way we're going to be. I can get you a place to race. I just can't afford at this point to pay you a lot of money. Right. Cut the purse, and actually, divisions grew. It got better. But unfortunately, by that time, was that because that they knew their track was in jeopardy of yeah, going? I, under? I, I truly, I truly believe that. Okay. The, those were the people in the days when you had people like Rodney Cook and uh, Speedy Fawcett and, and uh, um, um, the uh, Brumleys. They were um, the Rumleys. I mean, they were so much a part of community, so mm -hmm. part of the institution mm -hmm. that they cared enough about it. We're going to come race anyway. When it gets better, we'll we'll do better, but we all know because it's costing us more to come do anything, right? And that's when crowds dwindled down. And as you know, at some racetracks, crowds may have 150, 200, maybe three hundred people. And that's what you're having for attendance, and and racetracks were going out of business because they couldn't afford it. Do you think now? <clears throat> excuse me. Do you think now tracks need to work on their amenities because? You got to remember the tracks that we go to. Let me finish. The tracks that we go to nowadays, they are mom and pop businesses, mm -hmm. essentially. Mm -hmm. Been around 30, 40, 50, even 60 years. Okay. And they look like it. Yeah, they do. I, you know, there's Hope. some places that are in major needs of upgrades. Like some, shouldn't they be adding different amenities? Like Stafford is a great example. They've got like a, a, the microbrewery bar sure. that they have on the front straightaway. They have an observation deck that they yes. also put in. They put monitors in the urinals to watch the races while yes. you go to the bathroom. I mean, yep. there's all those little things. There's That's, monitors that was one up of the first things that caught my attention. Yeah, there's monitors up at the concession stand so mm -hmm. you can keep watching the races while you're waiting online for your food. Like, you know, there's the it gets a little, are going It gets in. a little nippy up there, so I was standing in the hot chocolate line <laughs> watching it. Right. And obviously it costs money to build those things it at does. your track. But isn't it one of those things? You know, old business adages that you got to spend money to make money. Take some blessings that what's taking place. The state of North Carolina passed some packages that's going to be helpful to a lot of racetracks. Which is? Um, the state came, and at the same time that North, North Wilkesboro got the uh, big settlement, the $18 million, mm -hmm. there was also a bill that went through that allowed uh, anybody in the sporting industry like this to be entitled to some money. Um, for instance, Caraway Speedway was awarded uh, somewhere nearly $500,000. Bowman Gray uh, was somewhere in the 500000 I think Hickory was somewhere around 500000 mm -hmm. And these are for capital improvements that is done through the county, through the state, that you apply for the funds and doing. I, I can tell you that, that since you've been at uh, 
Fairway Speedway, there's been uh, uh, a definite uh, change of scenery or different looks right now. Mm-hmm. We've already taken out some grandstands and put new grandstands in. Okay, great. Going to be paving. We also have, there's a, a suite off field. of turn four now, right? There's a suite off of turn four. We built that this year. The so, Haggots, uh, Darren was very good and built that. We haven't got it totally finished out yet. But is that for press or is that for guests? It's going to be for, to rent. It's to rent. Yeah. Oh. And uh, hopefully that uh, we're talking about, um, we had originally built for a spotter stand to be on top. But uh, I don't think that's going to work out too well for the location and the spotters not liking it so well. So it may turn that into an observation deck mm-hmm. where you can actually be down in the VIP and then if you want to walk up to the observation deck. Okay. Great. So trying to give some more options, some more things to the amenities that you speak of. But it, we couldn't have done it on our own. If it hadn't have been for the, the state to step up and, and help you, mm-hmm. you just don't have the funds to do it anymore. Right. It used to be you could maintain your racetrack. You could do the capital improvements that you needed to do. Mm-hmm. But it's so hard to do now that you have to rely on some outside sources. And, you know, we don't have grant writers or anything to spend full time and figure out how to do all that. So poor old racetrack owner just keeps on getting it done the way he can get it done. And uh, fortunately, I think this is going to be a game changer for everybody. It's just now that the money is starting to get into circulation. Right. Okay. You know, you've worked at different tracks over the years in, different facets, you know, from running a track to being a race director, an announcer, you know, um, what is, what do you get the most enjoyment out of doing? Being at the racetrack. Just being, it doesn't matter what, what position. Um, we were just at the North South shootout. Mm-hmm. I had a glamorous job at the North South shootout. Parking cars. I parked cars. <laughs> I thought you'd be up in the booth talking with me a little bit, but it didn't happen. You see, being at the racetrack for someone like me with the history and the years of investment, it is my life. Mm -hmm. It will always be the one thing that, that holds treasure to me. I've gone through my closet and I've cleaned a hell of a lot of clothes out of my closet but I can't get rid of my racing stuff. I just can't bear to turn that one down. Right. I'll wear it from another show to another show, or I'll pull it out of there and I'll wear it as kind of a throwback theme that I'm doing or having fun with, but I ain't throwing my racing stuff away. That's just, that's my life. That, my legacy, that's my my mark that if I walk out of here tomorrow and check out and believe me, it's been a great voyage. Uh, no sadness look back. Cause you say that guy had one hell of a time and he enjoyed it everywhere he went. And every person that he met at the racetrack, it was all thrilling and it still is to this day. And I still get a thrill yeah. of walking on that racetrack when you have an event like the North South where um, you have the spectators coming down and, and mixing and mingling with the drivers and you're doing the pit party, that was always my best time because I got to see those people. And fortunately, I have got to spend a lot of time with those people in and out of the racing industry. And my nucleus of 
friends, probably if you look really hard, you'll find a common denominator. Yeah, they're all racing people. They're racing <clears throat> people in some facet. I know, I know. And, uh, you, you know, we're, we're getting close to wrapping it up to, to being to the end of the show, but I definitely want to thank you for coming in today because you and I have shared many hours side by side in the booth at different tracks. It's been an incredible journey. Uh, you know, you've taught me just as much, you know, over the years about just not just being an announcer, just, you know, how to handle yourself or, uh, you know, be, be quiet, <laughs> humble, be humble sometimes where uh, I needed to be more. So I appreciate all of that advice and tutelage over the years. For that part, you're always welcome. And, and, and believe me, it's been reciprocated uh, many times over because, uh, you know, you're my legs and a lot of things. And that was uh, as truer now than it used to be. It used to be I hated to go down them damn steps many times. <laughs> and believe me, if anybody ever went to the Concord Speedway and I can count a caraway, there's 37 steps from the tower to the stands. Uh, with Concord, you had the whole grandstand that you had to run up. Mm-hmm. Then you catch a little bit of breath, come around behind the building, you had another set of steps to go up. <laughs> And if you survived them too, then when you opened up the door, you had another set of steps to go through yep. till you finally got to the booth. So you were my legs then. You have been my legs now. And for me, it's appreciative. What I appreciate more is, is you're not letting the history of the sport or old people like me die away without getting to, to, to enrich other people to tell where you really came from, where this sport really came from. And there's a lot more older than I am that is, has done. I just hope I'm filling um, my calling in the generation gap to be able to fill in some of the holes and, and to see where it goes for the future, because you guys with the digital and being able to do the things that you can do, I marvel at it. And I just smile. Ain't no way in hell I can do it. That's fine. Uh, I marvel that y'all being able to do it in the way that you do it and the passion that you have about it. And the one thing that always I admired the most about you is there was one particular word in life you never understood and you never took to heart until the day you die never ever change because no was not an option. You figured it out. You yeah. did a great job. And Derek, it has been utmost pleasure for me to be a part of your show and to share in the history that I could bring forth. Well, thank you. I appreciate you coming in today. You've definitely been a huge part of my career and, uh, you know, we've, we've laughed together, we've cried together, and uh, I just wanted to have you on here, too, for, you know, not just your stories, but for archival purposes, too, so people know about the history of the tracks that you were at. And, well, there you know. were some beautiful places. I worked in some great places, man. Thanks, man. I love you. 
Love you. You know it. All right. Doug Smith joins us on the Derek Pernasiglio show. God, he has got hours of stories and probably going to talk about hours more after we uh, get off the air here. But it was great having him in. We want to remind you to follow us on our social media pages and on our YouTube channel. Hit the like and subscribe button down below. Become a subscriber to the Derek Pernasiglio show on YouTube. You can also follow us on Facebook at the Derek Pernasiglio show and check us out on X, formerly known as Twitter. I still call it Twitter at Real DP Show. And you can also find us on Instagram at Real DP Show as well. So for Doug Smith, I'm Derek Pernasiglio saying thanks for tuning in and we'll see you the next time. Bye. Bye.